The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to open today's program by welcoming new listeners on affiliates in New York, California, Texas, Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and from coast to coast throughout all 50 states, as well as members of our armed services who are joining us today from remote locations. Thank you for making us part of your news week. In just a moment, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and lawyer who brought Edward Snowden's revelations of NSA surveillance to the public's attention, Mr. Glenn Greenwald, will be joining the program to help us understand why tyrannical governments have made millions of dollars of donations to the Clinton Foundation while maintaining policies which contradict foundation goals. Stay tuned because in just a moment, You're going to hear the facts and figures when it comes to donations from Saudi princes, the governments of Qatar and Brunei and Kuwait and others in a way that only Greenwald can tell it. We'll also hear more about his venture, The Intercept, which if you're not dialed into yet, offers in-depth analysis and reporting that is not only nonpartisan and thorough, but offers the stories and level of detail no longer offered by the mainstream media. But before Mr. Greenwald joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Glenn Edward Greenwald was born in New York City and grew up in Lauderdale Lakes, Florida. He earned his undergraduate degree from George Washington University and law degree from the New York University School of Law. He practiced law at Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz before co-founding his own firm, Greenwald, Christoph, and Holland, where he was known for his work on First Amendment cases. In 2005, he stepped away from his practice saying that he was bored and he wanted to have more of an impact. He started a blog which led to becoming a contributor to Salon and later The Guardian. And the rest is history. Greenwald was contacted by NSA subcontractor Edward Snowden and took the story of NSA overreach public earning him numerous journalism awards, including the Pulitzer Prize. In 2014, Greenwald co-launched The Intercept, backed by eBay founder Pierre Omidyard. We'll hear more about the, the stories being brought forward by The Intercept a little later in today's program. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report, five-time best-selling author, and the man Slate says is the fighter you want in your corner when the world comes after you, Mr. Glenn Greenwald. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Greenwald. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Well, as the old DJs on the radio used to say, the hits keep on coming. We seem to be learning more every day about where donations to the Clinton Foundation uh, have come from. But there are still a lot of folks who aren't familiar with exactly who made these donations, the size of the donations, and why this goes beyond political nitpicking. So help us walk through the facts. Sure. So the Clinton Foundation was actually created in 2001 when Bill Clinton exited the presidency. And the original idea was that it would be the um, entity that oversaw the construction of his post-presidential library, which typically is now built in this really elaborate way by eliciting private donors. And at the time, Hillary Clinton um, began running for the Senate in in New York, um, and uh, it was clear that she was going to have a political future. Bill Clinton continued to exert huge influence, obviously, um, as a former president, and so the money kind of just started pouring in um, way beyond what they budgeted or what they needed to build the presidential library, and so the function of this foundation quickly expanded, and they decided that it was going to be this worldwide, um, what they were calling a charitable foundation that would influence policy and projects 
on multiple continents throughout the world. And what they discovered really quickly was that there are a lot of people around the world who want to give huge amounts of money to people like former President Clinton and his wife Hillary Clinton, who exert great power in the world's most powerful um, capital, which is Washington. And millions upon millions upon millions of dollars started flowing in, not only to the Clinton Foundation bank account, but also to the private personal bank accounts of both Bill Clinton and then ultimately Hillary Clinton for speeches, a lot of which was coming from the same people who were donating the tens of millions of dollars to the to the Clinton campaign. And sure, when she was running for president and then when she became Secretary of State under President Obama, the nation's top diplomat shortly before that, many of the countries um, who have the most tyrannical regimes on the planet um, and yet who depend upon lots of access and favors from Washington um, governments like the regime of Saudi Arabia and Qatar and United Arab Emirates and Kuwait and Brunei, Bahrain, um, began giving millions of dollars to the Clinton Foundation. And this, of course, has become a controversy as she's running for president because people rightly want to know um, if someone has a good chance of going to the Oval Office, who is going to have their ear, who has influence over them, who has done favors for them that's expecting favors in return. And the kind of excuse or the argument or the, or the Unfortunately, we seem to have lost Mr. Greenwald, who is calling us from Brazil. So while our engineers are busy getting him back uh, on the line, let me take a moment to check in with my colleague sitting here with me, Charles Friedman, who is in the studio. Uh, Charles, what do you make of the fact that these tyrannical governments who have policies and laws in their countries which are directly opposed to the charter of the Clinton Foundation, nations that have made no other donations to other charitable foundations which are more established and do work similar to the Clinton Foundation. What do you make of these huge donations that have come into the Clinton Foundation? That's a clever way the Clintons have found of skirting U.S. law, which forbids foreign entities, or individuals for that matter, from making contributions to American political campaigns. These are political contributions I noticed that only something like 10 cents on the dollar of Clinton Foundation money actually does charitable work. One of the worst records of any charity that I can think of. Right. And just to put that in perspective, charitable organizations like the Salvation Army, I think uh, 85%, is it 85% or 90% of of every dollar donated actually makes it to the... Actually is used to help a needy person. What's really alarming is that... We don't see these countries like Kuwait, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Mm -hmm. we don't see them making similar donations to other charities. They're buying influence with someone whom they believe will be the next president and someone who indeed was Secretary of State. Yeah, I I really wish that we could find another explanation for this. You know, you know that I am an independent and I want to understand another explanation for such large donations, but I I'm failing to come up with one uh in particular because of the laws that these countries harbor, uh, such as discrimination against women, not allowing them to drive cars, not allowing them to go out in public with their faces uncovered. How, how, about, how about physical violence? How about beatings? How about mutilations? I and, mean, my God, come And on. one of the key charters in the Clinton Foundation was to protect women's rights and educate women and, and to help, uh, you know, establish those rights. Now, I understand that uh, the engineers have got Mr. Greenwald back on on the line now so we'll, we'll go back to that thank you charlie for joining me for a few minutes sure mr greenwald yes are you there okay not not sure well it looks like we had a technical snafu who knows it might have been a sunspot or something along those lines one of the things you point out in your article which i found fascinating is the fact that these terrorist uh nations or tyrannical nations as you describe them uh they don't exactly write big checks for other foundations that have similar objectives as stated by the the clinton foundation and that already looks a little bad well, right. I mean, the the reason I wrote this article that you're referring to is because I kept hearing, as I think I was saying before I got cut off, right before I got cut off, um, you know, Democrats and, and Clinton campaign spokespeople essentially feigning outrage or like they were offended over these questions being raised on the grounds that this foundation does really important work throughout the world. And, and it does work like um, it, it works toward better conditions and more equality for girls and women around the world. 
It works for eliminate income inequality. It works for human rights protections and labor rights. And if you look at the policies of these regimes, like Saudi Arabia and like Qatar, um, not only do they have zero interest in promoting any of those outcomes, they are overtly hostile to those goals. Yes, and so unfortunately, we're going to have to pick this up on the other side. We've got to take a hard sure. break here. I hate to interrupt you, but we've got to take a hard break. But we'll pick that up on the other side because I think that's an important point to make. You're listening to the Costa Report. Biodiversity is the very fabric of our lives. It is everything around us, all of nature, but human impact is diminishing biodiversity at an alarming rate. And because of that, the intricate web of biodiversity is unraveling in ways we don't fully understand, and our world is becoming less resilient. That's why we are biodiversity advocates. We're the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation. Guided by the greatest living naturalist, E.O. Wilson, we champion research and education that expands our understanding of biodiversity and informs worldwide conservation efforts. The E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation is building a movement of environmental stewards like you who share our sense of responsibility for the living world that is our home. Join us in our quest to protect biodiversity, the fabric of our lives. Visit eowilsonfoundation.org. If you listen to the news today, you might come away with the impression that our biggest challenges are political and economic. But if this were true, then countries which have different political and economic systems would be facing different problems. But they aren't. Every government and every nation is struggling with job creation, debt, immigration, climate change, terrorism, health care, energy, and wild swings in financial markets. So something else must be going on. That's why I'm inviting you to get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, a book which shows how the Roman, Mayan, and Khmer empires once faced similar challenges and what we can do to avoid their fate. Visit RebeccaCosta.com today and get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, because once you do, you'll never look at the world the same way. Hey, Patricia, I heard you were setting up a new home office. Yeah, Sam, I've been staring at this home office for dummies book for hours, and I still can't figure out the difference between a LAN and a WAN. We'll call user-friendly computing. They can help you set up an internal home network. But what about my wireless printer? What about it? They have all the answers to your network, workstation, or Internet problems. They even provide outsourced IT for businesses big or small. User-friendly computing provides professional guidance to you for new computer purchases or network configurations. They also provide on-site professional support to your staff for everyday computer and network issues. User-friendly computing is locally owned at 505 River Street across from the Gateway Plaza. Or you can give them a call at 831-423-9653. That's 831-423-9653. Cash flows and money move. The Money Moves show is dedicated to delivering tips and tools to help you earn more, save more, and protect your hard-earned assets. Host Pamela Fugit-Hetrick interacts with her guests and callers every Thursday night from 7 to 8 p.m. Recent topics have included what is going on locally with health insurance, tips to maximize your Social Security income, how do you build an emergency fund for your family, Medicare 101 tips, how do you choose and pay for home health care, and many other topics. So tune in, take notes, call and get answers to your financial questions from Pamela Fugit-Hedrick on Money Moves, Thursdays at 7 p.m. That's Money Moves, Thursdays, 7 p.m. on KSCO, AM 1080 Santa Cruz and KOMY 1340 Watsonville and 104.1 on your FM dial.
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is lawyer, journalist, and best-selling author Glenn Greenwald. And I apologize for the connection problems we had. Mr. Greenwald is uh, calling us from overseas, and uh, sounds like the phone line just died on us. But uh, thank you for calling back. Before the break, you were making the point that uh, donating nations have uh, policies that are inconsistent with the Clinton Foundation goals, such as improving the rights and protections for young women. And I wanted to offer you an opportunity to finish that thought. Right. So, you know, in a country where women are literally prohibited from driving, like Saudi Arabia, it's not very persuasive to claim that the reason they're giving millions of dollars to the Clinton Foundation is because they want to help the plight of girls and women around the world achieve equality. And so that gives rise to the question well, if their motive isn't to help the goals of the Clinton Foundation, what is their motive in giving these large sums of, of money to the Clintons? Um, and to me, the only viable answer is that they expect that they will get access and potentially favors in return. And there's a lot of things you can point to that the Clintons have done, particularly Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, that has benefited these regimes. Whether she did that because she was returning the favor or because she just believes in helping the world's worst tyrants. Of course, you can't prove, but it certainly merits a lot of scrutiny and questioning. That's one of the problems with quid pro quo. It's hard to directly connect the dots. And I think that your article makes it clear that there could be no other motive. In the absence of any other motive, uh, that's the only motive that's standing on its feet, except for it's very hard to say that just because you received monies means that you acted uh, to benefit the uh, donors. Uh, and, and so what I found most powerful about your report on foreign donations to the Clinton Foundation was the argument that Democratic supporters are making that large amounts of money does not necessarily lead to undue influence. And you make the point that this is the same argument made by the Republican Party in support of Citizens United, which at that time Democrats rejected. That, that was a very powerful statement to make in your, in your article. Well, in fact, you can even go back further. I mean, there's been a debate in Washington for more than two decades now, going back to the McCain-Feingold legislation about campaign finance reform. And more or less, the position of the Democrats has always been large corporate donations and large sums of money going to politicians corrupts the political process because it at least creates the appearance of corruption and in almost every case the reality because if you get millions of dollars from a corporation or from an entity of course you're going to open your doors to them first and they're going to have access and so it's pay for play that was always the the core view of the democratic party in arguing for campaign finance reform and the core argument of the Republicans in arguing against it was, well, just because we're getting large donations, you can't prove that we're doing anything corrupt. Um, even if we end up acting for the benefit of these interests that are giving us money, maybe we're doing it out of conviction or ideology. Um, and so to see this completely reversed in order to defend the Clintons and watch the Democrats jettison their core argument for 25 years about corruption in the political process and embrace the Republican argument, which is if you can't prove a quid pro quo, there's nothing wrong with it, is really kind of stunning to watch. I, I agree, and I thought it was extremely insightful to point to the fact that the, the very argument which they were opposed to, they have now embraced. Now, I feel a need to point out that you are neither in support of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. You're what I call an equal opportunity critic of illegal, unfair, and unethical behavior, as I am. Uh, but as you know, the most successful television, radio, and Internet broadcasts continue to be very partisan, very polarizing and agendized. And to this end, the media is playing a dangerous role in how these stories are, are uh, communicated to the public. These days, it's hard to find good investigative journalism. I believe that's why you founded The Intercept. Is that right? Tell us a little bit about The Intercept. Yeah, that, that's true. Um, the Intercept really grew out of the reporting I was doing on the archive that had been provided to me by um, the whistleblower Edward Snowden. And, and at the time, I was working at The Guardian, and, and we were working with other news organizations around the world, and there were all kinds of constraints on 
the ability or the willingness of news media outlets to report on on these stories, um, which, you know, regardless of what you think of Edward Snowden, um, these are really important stories to be told. This is really significant journalism and media outlets shouldn't be hesitating. And for all kinds of reasons, whether it was excess closeness to the U.S. government or loyalty to President Obama or fear of threats that were being made for legal purposes um, or the reaction of readers, there was just a lot of hesitation institutionally, not so much of The Guardian, although there too, but around around uh, lots of other media outlets. And so we wanted to create a media outlet that would be able to do fearless journalism, um, adversarial journalism, which is the reason there's a free press, um, to, to be adversarial to those in power, without any kind of allegiance to any faction or any party or any fear of alienating anybody um, to really just have the freedom to shine a light on things that ought not to be hidden, um, which is to me the core essence of journalism. And so we found a backer who believed in that vision of journalism and was willing to fund it, give us total independence. And, and so far it's worked out really well. My question is without that backer, do you have a business model that will allow you to sustain the intercept? Because I always find that challenging. If you find a benevolent backer, then fine. You know, you 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 can be nonpartisan and you can work on uh, stories that require you to invest a lot of time and uh, and check the veracity on, which is what you're known for in the Edward Snowden case. You know, you didn't just rush to the to the public willy nilly. Uh, you checked out this source, and I admire that. But uh, if you don't have a backer, what what kind of business model do you, do you have that makes it uh, sustainable? Well, it's a real problem for journalism. Um, I mean, journalists, you know, have have created a lot of their own problems, but this problem is not so much their own doing. With the advent of the internet, of course, most media outlets have lost huge amounts of money because it's very hard to compete with news on the internet that's available for free. And as news organizations have lost money, um, they've not only had to cut investigative journalism, which is expensive to do, um, eliminate news bureaus around the world, which severely limits coverage, but also they've become really vulnerable to threats, um, either by someone who's really rich, who doesn't like their coverage, or by the government who threatens to prosecute or to sue. And, you know, we saw this recently um, in the case of Gawker and, and Peter Thiel, the Silicon Valley billionaire who was secretly funding lawsuits against Gawker because they published articles which he disliked, and they ended up bankrupting yes. him. Yeah. Um, and media outlets are terrified of that um, because they don't have solid financial footing. And if you don't have solid financial footing, if you want to go report on a billionaire or you want to go report on the U.S. government, and they're threatening to use their infinite resources to keep you in court and make you pay lawyers, and you're already having trouble laying off you know, your journalist, you're going to pull your punches um, and be afraid. And so... It's not a great model to say, well, go find a billionaire somewhere who, who, who you know, will give you the money, no strings attached. It's much harder than, than it is to say. Um, but at the same time, it is a model that has worked for us. Um, right. and I don't know what the, the answer is. And it may um, be the so only model that works right now. I, I mean, it, 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 truly, it, you may need a benevolent backer in order to uh, bring uh, ethical journalism back uh, to the public again. I, I'm not sure there's another model available. We have to take another scheduled break, but we'll return with more from Glenn Greenwald after these short messages. You're listening to the Costa Report. In the opening of All Quiet on the Western Front, Eric Maria Remark wrote, This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all, an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will simply try to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped its shells, were destroyed by the war. Today, Project Healing Waters offers men and women that have escaped the shells of war the opportunity to heal by teaching our returning veterans to fly fish in some of the most beautiful, tranquil rivers in our country. These natural surroundings have the ability to restore the human spirit, and with your help, Project Healing Waters is able to reach out to thousands of our men and women in the military every year. For information on how you can help, go to projecthealingwaters.org. Please give and give generously to those who have put their lives on the line for you. That's projecthealingwaters.org. Help those who have escaped the shells of war and need your help to come all the way back. Coast Paper and Supply has been family-owned and operated since 1948. 
They have a wide array of products available, including brand name and eco-friendly cleaning supplies, paper goods, and compostable plates, cups, and cutlery. Whether your needs are for business or home, Coast Paper and Supplies' friendly and reliable staff have what you're looking for. They even accommodate special orders. You can find them at 151 Josephine on River Street in Santa Cruz, Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 4:30, or call at 831-423-3350. Coast Paper and Supply is a proud member of Think Local First. People do not like going to the dentist unless they're going to this dentist. Hello, folks. Michael Olson here with Dr. Guy Peabody. Well, doctor, you work with a lot of people who haven't been to the dentist for a long, long time. There's got to be a little fear there when they show up in your office. Yeah, it's funny you ask that. People are worried when they first come to see us that they haven't been to the dentist in a long time because they're afraid they're going to get berated. And uh, I chuckle at that because we're here to help people. We assure them that we have today and the future, and we're just going to take good care of them, and everything's going to be fine. The The most important thing we can do for them is listen to them. We want to find out what their concerns are. We want to find out who they are as people. We want to know if they're apprehensive about dental care or not. We want to know what their goals are. My job is to mainly find out how I can make them happy, and I can't do that unless I know what's going on inside. Call Dr. Guy Peabody for our consultation today and wake up to a great smile tomorrow. 831-457-0343 or visit drpeabody.com. Ranger Station, Ranger speaking. Hi. I'd like to report a bear hug. Uh, okay. Well, before I left my campsite, I was putting out my fire, and out of nowhere, Smoky Bear showed up and hugged me? So you drowned the fire, you stirred it, drowned it again, and felt that it was cold? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. He likes it when people correctly put out their campfires. He's pretty big on wildfire prevention. He's just letting you know you did good. With a uh, hug. He's a hugger. I just got a bear hug from Smokey Bear. <laughs> Status update! All right, I'm going to let you go now. I've got uh, a lot of uh, ranger stuff to do. There are many ways to start a fire, but one sure way to put it out. Learn how you can do your part at SmokeyBear.com. Only you can prevent wildfires. Sponsored by the U.S. Forest Service Ad Council and your state forester. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Stephen Wagner and I are pleased to announce the new program time for our weekly discussion of law and public policy. We pick legal topics that affect each one of us right out of the weekly headlines. Join us live every Saturday afternoon from 4 to 5 p.m. here on KSCO AM 1080. Remember, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is Glenn Greenwald. And before we went to break, we were talking about the sad fact that the only business model which makes sense anymore for honest, objective, nonpartisan journalism might be the need to find a benevolent patron, as was the lucky and fortunate case of the uh, of the Intercept. Now, I know you, you have to leave us in a few moments, but I can't let you go without asking you to give us a brief update on Edward Snowden. How, how's he holding up and what are his plans? Yeah, he's been doing he's doing great, actually. Um, obviously, he's in Russia, and he is incapable of, of leaving Russia because there is an international arrest warrant for him issued by the U.S. government, um, and he has effective asylum in Russia, but that wouldn't apply if he steps out. But beyond that limitation, um, you know, he's free to um, participate in the debate that he helped to galvanize around the world. He gives speeches, he writes articles, um, he makes appearances, he does events. Um, he's become an important free voice, uh, not just that issue of surveillance but and privacy, but lots of other issues as well. And he's been able to normalize his life in a way that, you know, back in Hong Kong in 2013, when we were working with him, we never thought was possible. So it's worked out really well for him. What's happening with regards to a pardon or allowing him to return to the U.S. without prosecution? Are you or anybody assisting him with that? He's represented in the United States formally by the ACLU, which definitely has been working a lot on trying to either facilitate some kind of a deal for him to return to the U.S. without you know, spending the next several decades in a cage. Um, the problem is that 
if you know the U.S. government is petrified that if they allow him to come back, he's going to come back to a hero's welcome, and this will galvanize other people inside the government to do what he did um, to enable the public to see what their government is doing as the public should. And that's what they really don't want. And so they feel like if they allow them to come back under terms that are too favorable, they run the serious risk of incentivizing other people to follow in his path. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because as time passes and the Snowden case goes unresolved, this example will no doubt discourage other whistleblowers who might find being permanently exiled from their own country too high of a price to pay. I mean, realistically, how many people are willing to pay that price? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, there's kind of a range of consequences. Um, you know, Chelsea Manning, who was the source for WikiLeaks, ended up with a 35-year jail term. Snowden is kind of the other pole, which you're right, you know, he's kind of exiled from his home, but at the same time, he's not in prison. Um, he's become a, an admired voice around the world. There's a film that's about to be released, made by Oliver Stone um, next month. It's premiering in New York. Um, he's played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, there was already a documentary that won the Academy Award about him. So he feels like, you know, he's really gratified. Um, it is true. You have to be willing to sacrifice a great deal. And he thought there was a good chance he was going to go to prison for life. And he was even willing to accept that risk. Um, so if there's the right level of conviction, the right level of, of principled passion, people are willing to sacrifice their own self-interest in order to serve the public or, um, fulfill some political end that they believe in. Well, I hear what you're saying. It's not as bad as it could have been. But it certainly doesn't it isn't an incentive for people to come forward. Well, that's the that's exactly why the U.S. government wants to make sure that he has as much discomfort as possible, precisely because they want other people who are in his position considering doing what he's doing to look at him and say, um, am I willing to have that happen to my life? And they want the answer for most people to be no, so that they can continue to conceal and maintain the secrecy regime without having whistleblowers, you know, like Daniel Ellsberg did. He almost went to prison for life. Lots of other people and then Edward Snowden be willing to come forward. They want the price to be as high as possible. You know, he's been punished enough. Uh, the right thing to do is a presidential pardon and to lift this arrest warrant all over the world. Uh, I, I think it, it's over. The information is out there. The man has been punished. You personally have been persecuted. It's enough already. Uh, the president should, you know, indicate a pardon and uh, that should be it. And before we lose you, give us your perspective on this release by WikiLeaks of the, uh, of the, uh, the DNC emails. Do, do you feel that that was appropriate or, you know, had you had anything to do with it, would you have kind of held that back until after the election? Oh, definitely not. Um, definitely you not. Know, <laughs> you can certainly. You surprised me, sir. <laughs> <laughs> you can certainly debate whether all of it should have been released. There was some information in there that was kind of personal in nature, not very much in the public interest that WikiLeaks probably should have redacted and withheld if they were acting responsibly. I think that criticism of them is is legitimate. But remember that the revelations in these emails were of huge interest to millions of people who are Democratic Party voters who voted for Bernie Sanders and learned what they always suspected, which was that the DNC was cheating by putting its finger very heavily on the scale in favor of Hillary Clinton, were, was working to undermine and destroy the reputation of Bernie Sanders while they were claiming publicly to their members and everybody else that they were neutral. And as a result of these revelations, the top five officials in the Democratic National Committee, the party of the person who's running for president who's likely to win and, and the current sitting president, all resigned because of the misconduct that was revealed. So, of course, this is something that voters ought to know as they make decisions about which party to support. There, it would be outrageous if WikiLeaks purposely sat on those documents until after the election. Um, the election is exactly when people ought to know about it. Um, like I said, you can make valid complaints or grievances that they weren't as careful as they could have been. I probably would have withheld a lot of it. Um, just out of consideration for people's privacy. But the substance of the revelations were 100% in the public interest. 
um, and definitely deserve to see the light of day. But interestingly enough, even though top five officials uh, stepped down, outside of that, there it really didn't change the outcome, which I was kind of surprised by. Well, I think that, um, that um, you know, people by this point had already, I mean, Hillary had already won the race. If, if this had come out earlier when, when the Sanders-Clinton race was still unresolved, it might have had a bigger impact. Um, but by this point, it was her, the nomination was sewn up, as was Trump's. And so the only choice that people really had was Trump or Clinton. And so the fact that the Democratic National Committee cheated, I don't think is really going to have much of an impact on whether people prefer Trump or Clinton. It could have had a bigger impact had it occurred earlier in the process and the nomination was still unresolved. Now, they say that they have additional emails that they plan to release. Would you uh, agree that they should do that before the election? Or have they done enough? Um, I think that uh, it depends on what these emails reveal. I mean, WikiLeaks sees itself as a media outlet. And they view their duties as being journalistic in nature. And just like the New York Times or NBC News or The Intercept or, or anybody else, if the information that they receive from a source is in the public interest, um, it ought to be revealed. You know, I think that... Um, there's been a lot of light shined on Donald Trump and his finances and, and his um, past relationships. There should be a lot more, but there should also be light shined on Hillary Clinton's. They're both seeking extreme amounts of political power. And if WikiLeaks can help bring transparency to the two major party candidates in the race, then I think they ought to do that. Well, like I said, you are an equal opportunity investigator. (laughs) And we are just about out of time, and I know you have to run, but I want to take this opportunity to thank you for your excellent reporting on The Intercept and also for making the more difficult of the choices uh, that were available to you. It's not been easy, but it is much appreciated by those of us who still have standards and are holding on to those standards. So thank you so much for taking time to be with us, and thank you for your good work, Mr. Greenwald. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. Now, we're going to take our final intermission, but uh, stay tuned because we have a special treat for you. Uh, Alan Dershowitz will be joining us next to talk about these donations to the Clinton Foundation and uh, and what the legal uh, impropriety is. I think we need to get to the bottom of that, and uh, he's agreed to join us here in the last segment. So we're in for a big treat. Stay right where you are. You're listening to the Costa Report. I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Cellars, recent winners of the best sparkling wine in the U.S. in the Champagne and Sparkling Wine World Championship. Congratulations, Scott. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. So what is it about your Brut Cuvée that beat all the other competitors around the world? We really focus on creating an expression of the Santa Lucia Highlands and doing it the right way. And when you control the process from the beginning to the end and you have talent like Michelle and top-tier grapes, they really shine through. This was a worldwide competition. It was definitely a humbling experience. We were in a room with producers that have been making wine for over 100, 200 years and was a huge honor to have Tom Stevenson give us the best U.S. Sparkling Wine Award. We fared really well overall. We had three wines win best of class, which was great. Visit the Caraccioli Tasting Room on Dolores Street in Carmel by the Sea, or find us online at caracciolicellars.com, or reach us by phone, 831-622-7722. Big data is changing the way organizations work. From data-driven marketing and ad targeting to the connected car, Big Data is fueling product innovation and new revenue opportunities. It's creating a culture in which business and IT leaders join forces to realize value from all data. They infuse analytics everywhere and make speed a differentiator, gaining competitive advantage from faster, more informed decisions. Leading organizations are creating new business models, developing new roles, and defining new big data architectures, including an infrastructure that can manage and process exploding volumes of structured and unstructured data, in motion as well as at rest, while protecting data privacy and security. 
Find out how IBM Big Data and Analytics can transform your business. Visit www.ibm.com slash big data today. Every Saturday from 12 noon to 1 o'clock on KSCO, it's Perspectives with Dr. David Biles and Tom Quinn. Perspectives covers a number of topics, including holistic health, vaccinations, and government waste. Don't miss the next exciting Perspectives program here on AM 1080 KSCO. Every Saturday from 12 noon to 1, right here. There are many sounds in your daily life. Ones that make you smile. (laughs) Ones that help you relax. And there are some sounds that can help save lives. Wireless emergency alerts. Now on many mobile devices, use a unique sound and vibration to bring you critical information about emergencies in your area. With updates from local sources you know and trust, you can be in the know wherever you are. Learn more at ready.gov slash alerts. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Okay, Simon, what are you wearing right now? Nothing. That's right. And what do people normally wear? Clothes. Exactly. So now Mommy's going to teach you how to dress yourself. Clothes keep us warm, they look good, and if we go out without them, the neighbors will talk. So it's important to know how to get dressed. Here's how it's done. Underwear always comes first, name tag at the back, then pants, then shirt. Get the first button in the right hole, or you have to start all over. If you're wearing a tie, it goes over, round, round, through, and pull tight. Tuck your shirt into your pants and zip up your flap. Socks going first, then shoes right on right, left on left. With shoelaces, just take the ends, cross them over, switch the loops. The rabbit goes down the hole, pull tight, and you left with bunny ears. I love bunnies. Good to know. Now remember, spots don't go with stripes, socks don't go with sandals, and if you've tucked in your shirt, wear a belt. Got it? Why are your pants on your head? Most parenting is hard to do in just two minutes. But spending just two minutes twice a day making sure they brush their teeth is easier and could help save them from a lifetime of tooth pain. For fun two-minute videos to watch while brushing, visit 2min2x.org. That's 2min2x.org. A message from the Partnership for Healthy Miles, Healthy Lives, and the Ag Council. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and Glenn Greenwald had to leave early, but we have the good fortune to have the greatest constitutional and civil liberties lawyer in the United States, Alan Dershowitz, joining us. Thank you, Mr. Dershowitz, for taking time to be with us, and happy birthday. Oh, thank you so much. I'm sorry that Greenwald is not on with me because I think I would uh, expose him as a total phony. Oh, no. Uh, Say it's not so. (laughs) Oh, it is true. Here's a guy who would never dream of facilitating the release of any documents that would hurt his beloved hard, hard left countries. Uh, He would never release documents that were critical of Castro's Cuba or of the Palestinian Authority or of any of the other beloved hard left countries. He's a he's a zealot, he's an ideologue, he's one sided. Um, having said that, I just want to make one important point. There is a tripart distinction that we have to think very hard about when we think about releasing material. There are the thieves, the people who steal the material, um, the the Mannings and the Snowdens. Uh, they have engaged in an act of civil disobedience, which is criminal. And uh you know, you can regard them like Martin Luther King if you want to, or you can regard them as, as something else. But they have committed a crime, and there's no doubt about that. But how else does the public find out about these things? Well, okay, that's, that's, that's a fair point. I mean, you know, how does the uh, public uh, uh, end tyrannical governments? Maybe they end it by engaging in acts of violence. So you can make an argument uh, that way, but understand that they're criminals. The second group are the people who just publish the materials, passively publish it. The New York Times and the Pentagon Papers case. I was one of the lawyers in the Pentagon Papers case. I go back a long time on this issue. I've also represented Assange, and I think Assange falls into the category of the New York Times uh, publishing material that they passively receive. That's First Amendment right under our Constitution to do that. Then there's the interesting third category. And the third category are maybe groups that facilitate or encourage the theft of material. And that's the cutting-edge issue that legally we have to confront in our society. Are there any groups that not only reveal the material, which they have passively received, but also encourage the thieves to get the material that they then publish, having been stolen from uh, from society? Look, 
nobody can doubt the following statement. Every government, certainly any legitimate democracy, has the right to keep secrets. We're entitled to keep the names of our spy secrets, the atomic code secrets, um, our diplomatic positions that we're taking in terms of the negotiation secret. And uh, nobody has the right to second guess um, those decisions. Now, obviously, we overclassify. We classify too many things. So the question is, are we going to leave to people like Snowden and Manning and Ellsberg uh, the decision-making authority, what to steal and what not to steal? Are we going to leave to the Kent Greenwalds, uh, the, I'm sorry, the, the Greenwalds of the world, the decision what to publish, what not to publish? You know, in a democracy, there has to be some degree of accountability. And so we're talking about operations that go outside usual systems of checks and balances. And, you know, it's a fair debate to ask whether Snowden's a, a hero or a criminal. And the answer is probably both. Well, probably uh, both is history. right. But every yeah. time the Congress talks about creating uh, whistleblower protection laws, yeah. you know, um, it, it, it just whistleblowers aren't protected. And, and yet well, they, they could they could create a system. Right. And legal protection by which people could come forward and not irresponsibly, as you're pointing out. I think that's we shouldn't exactly leave right. it willy nilly. I think that's exactly right. Look. Uh, these people who were the thieves never try to come forward. Uh, they claim they did. The evidence is uh, overwhelmingly to the contrary. Never went to responsible uh, authorities and said, look, my God, what we have found, we want you to look into this. We want a congressional committee to examine it. We want uh, uh, other oversight groups to examine it. Um, recently, they didn't go to the New York Times and the Washington Post, which are very responsible in how they vet material they went outside the system. Uh, in other words, they used criminality as a first rather than a last resort. I can easily imagine a situation where I would want to engage in an act of civil disobedience, where I said to myself, to be or not to be a felon. And I would cross over that line to felony because I would think that it's worth doing it. That's what Martin Luther King did. And yes. that's what other great heroes did. But they all took the responsibility. Uh, Martin Luther King held his hands up and said, handcuff me and take me to jail. And then he hired great lawyers, or mostly, mostly they defended him free, and, and confronted the system and won. It's very different from what Snowden did, and that is he took the material with him, ran away to uh, Russia, um, uh, wanted to go to South America. It's very different from what, even Green, uh, what, what, what Greenwald did. So let, let's understand that th there is a continuum here. We have to discuss this issue with some nuance, not just make, unequivocal heroes of all of these people and certainly not lump all of them into one category. As I said, there are at least these three categories, the thieves, the publishers, and the facilitators. Yes, but and, who, let me ask you this, who is sure. at fault if there is an absence of any legal process? This this is not going to end with Snowden. The I mean, Look, there, the there's going the to be other whistleblowers. And they're going to all hand. They're all going to mishandle it, and so are the the journalists and the and the uh, publications. They're all going to mishandle it. They're all going to misjudge. Uh, and and so, who's at fault if we don't create a legal process for this? Well, I think we have to create a legal process. I think the government is at fault, and I think what Snowden should have done is he should have challenged the system in court. And I think he would have gotten good response. I surely would have represented him. Other civil libertarians would have represented him. But he decided instead to engage in an act of civil disobedience and run away. Mm -hmm. That's very, very different. And you can still praise him for it. But don't put him in the same category as Martin Luther King, who stayed and went to jail and wrote his great letter from Birmingham. We're not seeing that kind of courage here. And so, uh, again, just don't... It's important not to not to put everybody into not one to category. glorify a this. Category. Yeah, you don't want to see this glorified. I, I want to change the system. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the glorification is okay as long as we understand that we're glorifying somebody who broke the law. Now, the law is too broad, mm -hmm. much too broad. We have mm -hmm. far too much classification, and um, you know, even getting to politics today, even some of the material that we know now bore some indicia of classification in the Hillary Clinton situation, was way, way over-classified. Much classification is done not to protect the government's national security, but to protect particular people from embarrassment. 
We know that that's the case, but we also know that there is legitimate reason for classification. We have to keep certain things classified, and we can't just uh, glorify people like Snowden who take everything and turn them over without any attempt to try to distinguish. What's the difference between Snowden and Jonathan Pollard? Jonathan Pollard spent 30 years in jail. He thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he was providing material to Israel, which Israel was entitled to get under their agreement. He thought that uh, uh, Israel's existence was at stake. Uh, he thought he was doing the right thing, right. and the government's response was to put him in jail for 30 years. Now, 30 years was too much in that case. Mm -hmm. Six months, a year, two years, maybe even five years might not have been too much. But I don't see much of a difference between what Pollard uh, did and what uh, Snowden did in many respects. And yet the whole world condemns Pollard, and many in the world uh, glorify, glorify Snowden. Uh, you, you might ask um, uh, Greenwald next time you have on the show mm -hmm. whether he would say the same thing about Jonathan Pollard as he said about That's uh, a good question. I, I hadn't thought to yeah. compare the two. Yeah, well, but, you no, know, he'll but... respond by saying that Snowden was trying to protect and help America and that uh, <laughs> Pollard was trying to protect uh, a Zionist conspiratorial uh, genocidal apartheid regime, Israel. You'll hear all the kind of political nonsense from from uh, Greenwald, but basically uh, it's hard to understand what the real Well, I am are. so glad that we had a chance to catch you before uh, you took off for your birthday celebration. And, uh, <laughs> Thank you. and we're just about out of time here. But I'll tell you, I'd like to bring you back and talk to you well, more sure, about you know, this. I have a new book. I have a new book coming out. It's called Erect. I almost got it wrong. Electile Dysfunction. Electile Dysfunction. No, seriously, is that the title? It, it's are you just. Electile Dysfunction, a guide <laughs> to the unaroused voter. <laughs> And it's a book written for the millions of Americans who don't like either candidate. Well, that would be me. That we've been putting to it. That would be me, so sir. <laughs> get me on to talk about that. All right, yeah. all right. We'll bring you back to talk about electile dysfunction. I, I think you're pulling my leg with that title, uh, but, no, may, but maybe not. Amazon, it'll be available the day after Labor Day, both as an ebook and as a hard cup. All right. Well, we'll we'll look for it. And thank you again <laughs> thank for joining you. us at last sure. minute. We really appreciate it. Uh, sure. We're going to take, take our final break and. And stay tuned. We'll come back with the second hour of the Costa Report. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.